Welcome to the Legends of Oral Regeneration by the Osteology Foundation. One host, one guest, and a whole bunch of experience and expertise. Meet the people behind the names and get unique insights. Hello, my name is Mauricio Araujo. It's my honor and pleasure to welcome you to the podcast of the Osteolog Foundation with its honorary board members who are indeed true legends of not only oral regeneration, but dentistry. Today, I interview the honorary board member, Professor Jan Linde. Professor Linde was chairman of the Department of Periodontology at the University of Gothenburg for more than 30 years. He was twice the dean of this school in Gothenburg, and also the dean of the dental school uh, in uh, Philadelphia, United States. Jan Linde was the editor of many editions of the textbook Clinical Periodontology Implant Dentistry, and for 30 years, he was the editor-in-chief of Journal of Clinical Periodontology. The, the list, the publication list of Professor Linde is very extensive. I counted more than 400 papers in all aspects of periodontology and related topics. He has received many awards and honorary titles, much more uh, rings than the number of fingers he has. And finally, for the last 50 years, Professor Lin has lectured extensively worldwide. He has trained many periodontists and has mentored many very like researchers as myself. Now, it's a pleasure to welcome you, Professor Lee. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Maurice, for, for inviting me to this particular session. I, it's great that, that you are the interviewer and I'm the candidate, so it's, <laughs> it's great. For a change, just for a change today. Dion, let's start from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, I know and I heard from you that uh, you, you wanted to be a journalist. That's correct. And, uh, but how did it work out? I mean, you want to be a journalist and then you became a dentist. Yeah. How come and why dentistry? Well, um, I wanted to study the Swedish language and um, uh, Nordic uh, literature history um, because I have practiced as a reporter at the local newspaper in Sweden during my high school time. But my father said that maybe you need a, a, a profession before you, you start to play uh, this game of writing. Uh, so I applied uh, to a profession and that was dentistry. That's more like an accident. Uh, and. Uh, I had no preferences for dentistry when I started and during the training period I wasn't too enthusiastic about the, the job but over time it grew into me and 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 um, and uh, when I started to practice uh, I became more and more interested in in the fine work and fine art that dentistry is all about and also then I was introduced to science and research 
And that was the turning point in, in my sort of life with dentistry. And, uh, and Ion, but after the end of the dental school, what did you do? I mean, you finished the dental school and did you have a plan? Now I finished dental school, I have this strategy or you just follow opportunities or you just follow your instincts? Now, I, after, after I finished uh, dental school and I started to, to work as an assistant uh, uh, in, a, in a clinic, uh, I realized that, that my, my training was a little bit mechanistic and I, I needed a deeper insight into certain areas of medicine. So I started to study medicine uh, in medical school. Uh, and uh, I realized after a couple of years that, that um, maybe within dentistry I could um, get the same sort of challenge as I could with medicine, provided I started to study certain topics of dentistry in more detail. Mm -hmm. And that's, sure. sorry. And, and that, now please continue, please continue. No, uh, so it, it was, was more an accident that became, that it became periodontology. I was first in, in uh, radiology uh, and, and then in, in oral surgery. And then my boss, who was an oral surgeon, uh, became more and more involved in, in periodontology. And hence, I moved with him into periodontology at the University of Lund. And how was periodontology at that time? I mean, it must have been very challenging because well, there was very little knowledge. It, it was very challenging because in the early, <clears throat> or you can say in the middle of the 60s and, and um, late 50s, trauma from occlusion was regarded as the main reason for, for pyorrhea or, or, or periodontal disease. And um, uh, then there was a surgical component to periodontics and that was to cut away pockets so that the um, real periodontists uh, who were also nathologists could um, adjust the occlusion or make uh, crown and bridge in, in period cases. Uh, so so it, it was a, it's a time of confrontation between, between the people who believed, and I thought had evidence that oral debris or plaque and calculus were the main causes of periodontitis. But then, you know, there were also other schools of thought that focused much on, on uh, occlusion. And you should know that from South America because occlusion in South America was the main cause of um, periodontal disease, I would say, in the 50s and the 60s. So it was a time of, of confrontation between uh, the Glickmans uh, uh, from um, the United States and the Wehrhauks from Scandinavia. So it was yep. a challenging time. Yeah. And I'm coming to that in a moment. I'm <laughs> coming to that. And you know, I understood that very early you you decide to move to Umio and there you became chair of the pedo department, right? 
Yeah, I, I mean, there was no strategy behind this. I, 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 had, a, I had a reasonably good job in Malmö. I was assistant professor at the Department of Periodontology. I was part-time in private practice. Uh, and then there was this uh, chair uh, advertised at the University of Umeå, which is from us, from the south of Sweden, far, far, far away up north. Uh, and um, we had a discussion at home whether we should take the opportunity to see other parts of the world. And, and therefore I applied for the position in Umeå. And since there were only a few other applicants, I was lucky enough to get the job. And I stayed there for, for one and a half years, but then the position in Gothenburg was open. And then I applied for that job. And again, there were very few applicants. So again, I was fortunate enough to get the job in, in, in Gothenburg. But, but, but Jan, you became chair with, I think, uh, 30 years old or something like that. Very, very, very young. Yeah, but, you know, if, if there is no competition, you have to take what you get. <laughs> <laughs> but how was it? You were so... I mean, you suddenly you were the boss. Yeah. And uh, you have, uh, you were the first boss because there was nobody before you. In Gothenburg, I was the first boss. In Umeå, I was not the first boss. <clears throat> but uh, in Gothenburg, you were the first. In Gothenburg, we, we, I was the first boss. And, and, you know, it was a new dental school, new dental faculty. And, and I could hire uh, the people I... I, I I wanted to, to uh, work with. And I was lucky in Gothenburg to find uh, a good number of good people. But as a matter of fact, Maurizio, um, the people I, I surrounded myself with in Gothenburg were already available in, in Umeå. And when I came to Umeå, I started a series of research projects in Umeå. And when I moved to Gothenburg, all the faculty, or most of the faculty in, um, in Umeå moved together with me to Gothenburg. Even the secretary came with me to Gothenburg and the dental hygienist. And you may have heard names like Sture Niemann, Don Lungen, Anders Hugoson, and, and all that group came together with me from Umeå. Wow, so you had the, this group of people in Umeå, and um, so, but, you know, I, I always thought the following. Gothenburg was very successful, uh, I mean, hugely successful as a department of periodontology. And I always thought you came, how did you organize? You thought like, uh, I have to organize this like a company, an enterprise. How do we organize this to work so efficiently that we move always forward? Was that a strategy? I mean, how do you... As a matter of fact, the, um, the success of, Go of Gothenburg is, is not my success. It's the success of all the people that have worked in the Department of Periodontology. I've been very lucky uh, to, to find people good people, intelligent people, hardworking people uh, who uh, wanted to, uh, to uh, work in the Department of Periodontology and, and hence um, 
with a few ideas that I put on the table, we managed to um, arrange or, or, or develop a, a research unit which became uh, rather strong, both in the clinic and in the lab. But, but you must realize that that was not a one-man job. It was a job with many, many, many people involved. Yeah. I mean, uh, indeed, I, I have to say, you mentioned Stuart Niemann and others. Many people doesn't know that Stuart Niemann was your student. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, he was your first PhD student, if I'm not mistaken. No, that was Anders Hugerson. Oh, it was Anders, the first one. Well, yeah, no. Uh, you know, I, I, when I came to Umeå, I had uh, been involved for some years in studying the effect of estrogen and progesterone on microcirculation, together with Bornemark, which uh, very few people know. But I worked with Bornemark long before implants. And, and we, we worked with studying the effect of estrogen and progesterone on vas microvasculature because we felt that it was a hormonal change during pregnancy gingivitis that uh, was responsible for the redness and swelling that pregnant women in those days uh, were uh, affected by during pregnancy. Uh, and we also tried to find out whether during the menstrual cycle there was change uh, in uh, the microvasculature depending on the various levels of estrogen and progesterone. So that was my introduction. And Hugerson's charm charge in, in Umeå was to evaluate in the dog how by supplying the animals with uh, different amounts and different concentrations of these two female sex hormones, we could change the composition of the vessel walls or the rather the, the permeability of the vessel walls in the gingival tissues. So mm -hmm. that, was, that was how we started. So we had this culture with animals, dogs coming from Umeå, which we restarted in, in, in Gothenburg. And then um, there was very, very few studies uh, related to the long-term success of periodontal therapy. So, and since we were young at that time, we thought that maybe in the clinic, we should start to follow up our patients in a more rigorous way and see how, how different treatment procedures um, affected the patient's periodontal tissues over time. So it was not so difficult. Now talk about, came to my mind about uh, your book. And uh, because I think your book, when you released the book was in the 80s, right? 81 or 83. Uh, the, the first book was in, in the Scandinavian language and I, I don't really recall when, when the first book came out, but, but it was um, only Scandinavian authors. <clears throat> and, and then uh, we wanted to make it a little bit more international. And, and uh, with the international at that time, we meant uh, we wanted an influx from Bern and from, from Klaus Lang's group. So between these two groups, Gothenburg and Bern, um, we had a uh, great fun publishing uh, one of the first international editions that, that came around uh, 1983. 
for sure. And that, but you know, I think it's, I was really surprised. I was a student. And I remember when I saw your book, your book was not um, a combination of techniques to treat the pocket, how to do this, how to do that. Now suddenly your book was a collection of studies trying to explain why do we have periodontal disease and try to support the different concepts. It was so very different, so very different from the other period books. Was it a challenge to make, how, how come you come to this type of book? I mean, it, people, did you think could be boring to a dental student to read that book or did you imagine the success? No, but, but actually we wrote the book uh, for our own uh, entertainment, so to say. I mean, uh, we always ask a question, should we, for instance, should we do an apical position flap or a so-called access flap, as the term was in those days, a modified Whitman flap. What do we recommend our students? What do we teach our students? And that must, at that time, we felt be scientifically based. We could not sort of just, as they did in the old days, say, this is how it is, and this is what you have to do. This was the old professor's time. But, but uh, that's what we didn't like. So, so we said, what's the evidence for this and this and that? And when there isn't any evidence, please, try to generate data so, so you can provide some strict uh, uh, advice to the students, not based on your temperament, but based on uh, what type of data you have. Yeah. And, and like you said, many people thought it was an awful textbook because you, you didn't show too many uh, cases, too many instruments, how to cut and how to do this and that. But we tried to have a scientific approach. But there were so many other books that had this mechanical approach, so why not? Yeah, at the end was very successful. I mean, one of the most successful textbooks in dentistry in history, or maybe the most successful. I mean, um, it was amazing, amazing. You know. And I have to ask you something about this. And uh, it's about how do you choose what to study? I remember, at least from my own experience, it was you who once looked at me and said, Mauricio, let's study sockets. It always you picked the topic, the perfect topic to study. How do you, how do you decide what to study? Well, your first topic was, if I remember correctly, vocations, wasn't it? Yes, also, uh, uh, yes, it was, was uh, also yeah. you who chose. Yeah. And, and, and the vocations was always a dilemma for me because our strategy in, in the department uh, in, in uh, the early 70s was that for a, um, the objective, the treatment objective for single rooted tooth was to reduce pockets down to four millimeters or five millimeters. Uh, uh, and um, in a molar, that was not possible always. So we said, well, then let's make a molar a single rooted tooth. And then we have the same strict uh, treatment objective for that molar. So we 
we sort of uh, root fill the number of molars and we used uh, single roots of the, abut of the molars as abutment for bridge reconstructions, etc. But I always felt that, that what, what's the problem with the molar? And, and you may recall that there were lots of papers who said that we leave plaque and calculus behind in the vacation phonics. Um, and that could be one reason why we don't get the, the, the proper healing. So I asked you as a graduate student, why don't we see if we experimentally produce a vacation defect with the horizontal base and see if that can be restored into a vacation with new bone fill and a new attachment apparatus. Uh, and um, I, I think that, that you proved that this could be done. And once this had been proved, then we had tried to apply it in the clinic, yeah, which again uh, seemed to be much, much more difficult than in the experimental animal. And I, I, I think that the reason for this inability of ours is that, first of all, it's difficult to get coagulum stability. So you don't have a shrinkage of the coagulum in the frication defect. And secondly, that we are unable to uh, properly clean the frication. And if you have uh, plaque and calculus left in the frication, of course, reattachment will be, or new attachments would be very difficult. But then, when we have all this stuff behind us, Mauricio, uh, then uh, we had a new challenge. And, and at that time, uh, people inserted um, implants, uh, not according to the Bronema concept necessarily, but they removed teeth and put in the implants in the socket and said that this works very well. And, and both you and I said, well, let's take a look at it and let's start with seeing how an extraction socket heals. And with this rather simple approach, Mauricio, we got a number of answers, but then we got even more questions so we could continue to evaluate uh, what uh, our data really uh, meant for the clinician uh, who wanted to place implants uh, soon after the removal of, of teeth and, and uh, etc. So it's, I mean, the prepared mind uh, comes up with, with ideas sometimes. So, okay, okay. But, but in summary, Jan, when you decide for a topic to study, it's because you see a difficult in the clinic you are not able to achieve uh, a certain outcome when you treat the patient. So this is the topic to pursue and to study that how you choose. Well, maybe, uh, maybe you, you, you think much more of my thought process than I do myself. But, but remember, Master, you saw yourself many of the patients that we treated in Gothenburg in the old days. They, they, they came with periodontal tissue destruction to a level where no one wanted to treat them. Uh, and we said, we beginners in 19, 
69, uh, we said when we received these patients, what should we do? Should we extract the teeth and send them to the prosthetic department? And, and Stuhlneman and I said, no, let's try. What can we lose? So we, we, we started to, um, to treat very, very advanced cases. And uh, we did very, very advanced prosthetic therapy. And the reason why we did prosthetic therapy is that we, when we came to the prosthetic department and asked them to do it, they said, Jesus Christ, no, thank you. We don't want to, to, to be involved in this type of Shagana dance. So, so um, you have to do it yourself. So we did it ourselves. And by that, we learned a lot. And that, that's the reason why we entered into occlusion. And we said it cannot be so that we have two groups of, 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 of schools. The Glickman school who believes that occlusion is important and the Berhar school who doesn't believe that it is important at all. So let's see what is, what is the role of occlusion, not only in the etiology of, period, of periodontitis, but also in the management of the periodontal case. Johan, talk about the Glickman School and the Scandinavian School. I have heard many stories from you about this. But also, it's also true that you moved to the United States in 1983, I think, yeah. to become the dean yeah. at Universal, the, the dentist school at the University of Pennsylvania. And you moved to the United States that was the house, the home of the Glickman School. A, a place in which very often the so-called Scandinavian concept, concept to treating periodontal disease was challenged and even sometimes criticized. How was this? Was it a very, was a big, why did you have this, did you do this change or do you have a need for a challenge? How was it? Well, <clears throat> I came to Gothenburg when I was 32, I think, and um, after, uh, after 15 years in Gothenburg, uh, I was invited um, to, be, to be a candidate for the deanship at Penn, and I said initially, no, thank you, because I felt that, um, that this was not a good challenge for me. But, but Dr. Amsterdam, Morton Amsterdam, he, he insisted, he was the chairman of the search committee and he insisted that I should uh, come over. So I came over for, for a couple of visits and I gave seminars to, to the graduate students, two or three day seminars. Uh, and uh, at the end of, of the sessions, I was invited again and again. I said, no, thank you. But I was persuaded eventually to, to, to go to Penn and and I must say my time at Penn was, was uh, very, very interesting, very challenging, but I was always met by Dr. Amsterdam and Dr. Cohen and their disciples with the greatest respect. And I must say also that, that um, uh, I was never confronted uh, with uh, any ideas that, that I could not accept. I mean, Dr. Amsterdam believed that in certain situations, trauma from occlusion uh, had a part in periodontal tissue destruction. We did not agree upon that. Uh, but on the other hand, I also saw Dr. Amsterdam's 
30-year results, which meant that his dealing with patients was, in my mind, or in my way of thinking, very good. I mean, the net outcome was very satisfied patients with very good clinical sort of you know, appearance and in radiographs treatment looked very fine. So I understood that maybe there is more than one way of treating periodontitis. So as long as you have proper infection control, I mean, that is the basis. Whether you upright molars or whether you splint teeth um, may be not so relevant, but um, the important plaque control issue and infection control issue must be the basis. And on top of that, there are many other ways of dealing with the problem. And talk about the 80s. How, when and how did you become interested in tissue regeneration? I mean, you, you will start to publish a lot about this topic in the 80s, right? Yeah. With, uh, how was it? Well, that was the time when Torquil Karin uh, came to Gothenburg as associate professor. Uh, so we had two associate professors, that was Sturenim and that was Torquil Karin. And the two of these guys, <clears throat> they started to work together. Uh, and you know, before Karin came to, to Gothenburg, he had made all sorts of studies with moving keratinized gingiva into the oral mucosa and he had transplanted gingiva into oral mucosa and found that the, the fibroblast or the, or the, the connective tissue of the mucosa and the gingiva were different and that they produced a different outcome, which was the epithelium. And uh, between Karin and, and Neiman, they took this concept into, uh, into uh, periodontal tissue regeneration and they did together with our pupils a number of studies showing that uh, gingival connective tissue cells cannot produce cementum and attachment. Bone cells cannot do it, but periodontal ligament cells can do it, produce new cementum and periodontal ligament. And that was uh, also eventually part of your thesis, wasn't it? Yes. And I just wonder, how was the impact of Jack Caton's publication? What did you think at the time when you, you read that paper? Well, I mean, that was, that was part of Stuart Neumann, wasn't it? I mean, uh, Caton and Neumann worked together when Stuart Neumann was in, uh, in Rochester. And, and um, the first study that really, I think, came out was a study by Caton and Zander, where they had treated an infrabony defect uh, with a, a flap procedure. And they showed that if they had very clean teeth and if they maintained a very good plaque control, they got a lot of bone fill in the defect. But when they took a biopsy and sectioned the site, they found that there was an epithelium on the root surface facing the bone tissue. Uh, we always believed in that day that if you had bone, you must have cementum and a periodontal ligament. But now they show that they had epithelium interposed between the root surface and the bone. 
And then came Caton and, and Zander's studies with, with, uh, <clears throat> with all the biomaterials that they put in the defects. And then they took biopsies and the only thing they measured was the distance from the cement enamel junction to the base of the epithelium, junctional epithelium. And they found that whatever they put in there, in terms of biomaterial, nothing worked. And that was uh, when Karing came back or came to Gothenburg and he and Sturenemann met and then they started to think. And that was when this mechanical approach of protecting the wound from the gingival tissues came along, which became guided tissue regeneration. Well, do, and do you think that is a future to tissue regeneration, the sense that uh, maybe somebody will come up with a predictable way to regenerate the lost periodontium? I hope so, Maurice. Uh, right now, it doesn't seem um, that, that it works always. You know, uh, today we, we, we differentiate between efficiency studies and effectiveness studies. And you have many, many efficiency studies showing that um, guided tissue regeneration works very well. Or let, let me rephrase that. You have a few efficiency studies showing that um, guided tissue regeneration works very well. But if you go to efficacy studies, multi-center studies, the, the outcome, as you know, is not very good. Uh, and there is a clear, what we call center effect, which means that in the hands of some people, some dentists, some clinicians, guided tissue regeneration apparently works, whereas in the hands of other dentists, it doesn't work. Uh, and, and so with respect to that particular issue, uh, I think we still have to sit back and, and wait for a new development. But we all, I mean, there are all sorts of combinations possible, but the more you complicate an issue, the more difficult it will become in the end. It will become more difficult. So I, I, I think that there has to be some new ideas and some new thoughts, which is rather different from the current approach that will solve this particular issue. Now, uh, talking about these different clinical concepts, and also taking into consideration that you had been many, many, many congresses with debates, mm -hmm. with round tables discussing this. Is there a, a meeting that you remember that was like a memorable clash between clinical concepts that, that you, you took part of it? Well, I remember when I had been, mainly when I was, when I was in my 30s, and I, 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 I came to, um, uh, to the United States and I was, uh, I was confronted with people who, who didn't believe so much in, 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 in plaque control. And, and they call this um, a Gothenburg intensive plaque control during healing. 
You remember once every two weeks, the patient yes. came back. They, they, they said that this is a ridiculous approach, Dr. Linden. Uh, and, I, and I said, yeah, that's because you don't understand that we, in order to have a model that we know works, uh, that we later can deviate from, you have to be very strict in the beginning. We don't, I don't want to see recurrence of disease. I want to see healing following treatment, not recurrence of disease following treatment. And, and that was confrontation with, with the big stars at that time. Uh, and um, I, I felt a little bit humiliated and, and, um, and, and so, but, uh, you know, I can be very stubborn. So in the end, um, uh, I never gave up. <laughs> I thought that infection control, damn it, is, is uh, much more important than flips here and flaps there and flip flaps and, and uh, stay on infection control. Stay on infection control. Also, when it comes to aesthetic periodontics, Marisio, um, uh, there has to be, I mean, issue number one is infection control, because if there isn't infection control, the outcome of any aesthetic procedure in the gum tissue will not be the same as if you have proper infection control. Absolutely. Jan, I have two more questions. And, uh, well, let's go. What was, I mean, you have a very long career. It's more, almost more than 60 years, right? In dentistry, right? 60 or something. Can we move right? to the next question? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I want to ask you the following. What, what is the most memorable, me memorable moment of your career that you wow you think jesus now i mean the moment you understood how relevant you are and you were and you still are for so many dentists periodontists students research how relevant you have to so many patients that help to treat when did you understand when did you understand how important your work became. Now, I, I think, Maisio, that I, I share this moment with my old friend, Stephen Iman. Uh, we had a patient as a referral in 1970, a patient uh, that you have seen because he was available when you were in the department and he is still available. His name is Bengtsson. Oh. He, had a, he had a very, very aggressive periodontitis. Um, and, um, and we, we really said to ourselves, this is, this is the end of the road, Dr. Linde and Dr. Neumann. You cannot treat a patient like this. And then we said, why not? And, and, um, and we, we, we did all the surgical procedures and we did all the splinting in provisional splints. And we, we, we learned basically how to, uh, how to do it. We started with the patient saying, which teeth can we possibly maintain and which we cannot maintain. And then we removed the teeth that we couldn't maintain. We made splints and we found that these cross-arch splints were stable. 
and we said, aha, then we can go on. So we went on and we removed the pockets, eliminate, oh, not, we eliminated the, the, the pathologically deepened pockets by access flap. Uh, and we, we, we tried to do uh, a, what was called a modified Widman flap at that time, but we realized that when we sutured back the flaps, they sank down to the marginal bone level, so they became apically positioned. But that's another point. These were very, very advanced cases. And when we found that we could insert the definite reconstructions on this young person, we said, oh, did it really work? And then we followed the patient and, and uh, it, it worked year after year after year after year. But in 1971, when this first patient was completed, it, it was a change in, in, in my way of looking upon our profession because we could see that, that it was possible uh, to, uh, to really save this particular patient's dentition, his self-esteem. And uh, so uh, that was a, a great moment in 1971. Wow, I remember that patient. We have several pictures from them. Yes. Fallen patients, I remember him. Mm -hmm. Jan, now time for advices. Which advice could you provide to the young generation who is start a career now? Well, <clears throat> well, Moise, I, I of course expected this question uh, because uh, all other people who have been in, in, interviewed in this uh, podcast have got the same question. And I, <clears throat> first of all, I think the student must be interested an interested person and also a person who is ready to become involved in whatever topic. I don't think the topic is very important. I think it is the individual that he is interested and that he becomes devoted to stay with his job, so to say. Um, if you are in material sciences, if you're in <clears throat> historical sciences, or if you're in dentistry and periodontology, stay where you think you have the interest and work on that particular interest. Of course, over time, you will always move from one line of interest to another line of interest. But when you start, you have to identify yourself and be comfortable in the topic you have selected and the situation you have been choosing. And I, I know that there have been many learned people who have come up with some very brilliant ideas how to give advice to a young person. But a young person is very different from another young person. And uh, uh, if there is something I've learned over time is that there are many, many, many different personalities in this world among graduate students. Uh, uh, you, Mauricio, is very different uh, from other people that I have worked with and the other people I, I worked with are also different from other people again I worked with. 
So you, you can't give a common advice, I think. I think you, you have to have a person who's genuinely interested in something, whatever that something is, and that he or she has the energy to work on that. And also, yeah. I mean, when you look, now look back on history and you try to remember, uh, you have to recognize, Mauricio, that uh, this uh, memory is very selective. You seem to remember all the good things and you forget about the bad things. And therefore, when, when you, like this now, you've done for 30 minutes or so, reflect back on, on what has happened, you remember only the good things. <laughs> and, and, and therefore, the history description is, is, is false. Of course it is. There has been many problems that, that uh, are not so important today as, as, as the, the happy memories. It's true. It's true. It wasn't. Well, you know, on behalf of the Osteology Foundation, the whole dental community, and the countless patients that you helped to treat, thank you so very much for this interview. Thank you. Thank you for your brilliant career. Thank you for asking me, Maestro. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.